0: We will continue and hopefully conclude our reading from the Sermon on the Mount, not from the Gospels in general, but in the Sermon on the Mount today, because we are very near the end of it. Okay, last week we covered the section on trusting in the universe. Through prayer, and the golden rule. And right after that, Jesus says, enter ye in, this is Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, enter ye in at the straight gate. And straight, of course, means narrow. Straight doesn't mean straight in the uh, modern sense. It's spelled differently. We still have that usage in the noun straits, meaning narrow passage of waterway, like the Straits of Magellan for example, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Just two verses in this section, very important point, however, one that the Masters have commented on very often, this is, of course, the concept of the Manmukh and the Guru that Sanchi spent 11 days on his 1980 tour elaborating on. And he was, of course, commenting on a series of hymns by Guru Ramdas, um also elaborating on the same subject. And most masters have commented somewhere or other on these two ways. There are other sections in the Bible also in which the way of the worldly person, the way of the person committed to his own destruction, is contrasted with the way of the person who is open to God. Now, this sometimes strikes people as simplistic, because um, we are not that simple. Okay? So most of us who are on the path, who have committed ourselves to finding God, uh, are very far from being guru Moks. And we have many things. We may have wanted to have entered in, in the straight gate uh and walked the narrow way, but uh, there are a lot of us does not. We are far from being unified people yet. And the same is true, of course, of, of those who have not made that commitment. Um, very few people are totally committed to their own destruction or to, or to not waking up. There's something in everyone that is responsive to these things. So it's not, a, it's not a judgment of anyone's ultimate worth. Um, ultimately, everyone will find it. The, the few there be that find it and the many there be which go in thereat. referring to the, the two ways, is, is, is within the confines of time only. At any given moment, the moment when the speaker is saying this, or at the present time either, for that matter, the moment when we are reading it, there are only a few who are going to find the narrow way, and there are a great many compared to them who are going to find the Broadway. But that isn't in the long run, from the point of view of eternity, um, that does not hold true. That is only a relative statement. So ultimately, everyone will be, go in at the straight way, and will definitely find God. But what the, what the verse refers to is, is not an ob- objective assessment of various people, but it refers only to choice and commitment, okay? We have choices and we can make, make them. Entering in at the straight gate involves making a choice and following it through, and there are the sections immediately following elaborate on this too. We, we have that open before us. We can decide what do we really want out of life. If we want the truth, if we have a sense of our own inadequacy, of our own limitations, that we are not what we were meant to be, that we should be, we were born to be something more. If this is clear to us, even for a few moments, even even in fits and starts, so to speak, um, we can still make the decision and the commitment, throw ourselves on the mercy of God and come to the feet of the Master. And that is what is meant by entering at the gate. And in any generation, there will not very many people do this. It will depend on the Of course, the circumstances of the time, uh, the following of the particular master who was available, how many masters there may be in the world at one time, and things like that. But um, proportionately speaking, there are never very many. I mentioned before that Jesus probably had, as far as we can tell from the Gospels, which are not clear at this point, he may have had as many as 70 to 80 initiates. The number 70 is referred to sometime ...as that of his following. The twelve, of course, were the ones who were supposed to... ...they were being trained. They were being given special attention in order to carry on the work. Other people besides the twelve followed him. We know of the various women. Mary Magdalene and others are mentioned... ...plus a number of other people are mentioned. And at several places, the number 70 is used in connection with the disciples... ...who were following him. And then there were others two that he had in various towns whom he visited, such as the family in Bethany, Mary and Martha, and Lazarus, which we will meet later. Uh, but probably not many more than that. There is no reason to think that there were many more than that. So these are the people who made the commitment during his lifetime, out of the entire population of the world at that time, only approximately 70 persons recognized the living master and followed him. So it's, uh, it's a small percentage. But if you think of it from the other point of view, from the point of view of eternity in the long run, and recognizing in Swamiji's words that the Satguru is an incarnation eternally existent upon the earth, um, that the opportunity never goes away, then we realize that these words were spoken 2,000 years ago. And before that time, back to the dawn of history, and, uh, and before, because history really dawns kind of early, kind of late, I mean, very recently compared to the life of man on earth, and uh, coming down to the present time, uh, quite a few people have already done exactly what we are doing, or trying to do, and they will, uh, they are all going in through the gate, imperfections and all, Okay? One of the points, of course, of the Master's mission, we've mentioned many times, is the forgiveness of sins. And in the recognition of the living Master, there is a... a and the throwing ourselves on his mercy is um, definitely carries with it the capacity to wipe away imperfections that may exist. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits, ye shall know them. Very interesting and incisive passage, I would say, uh, and a very important one. Obviously, there are such things as false prophets in the world. And with all that the Masters say, and that the Bible says too, about the criticism of saints, the fact remains that not everyone who is supposed to be a saint, who considers himself a saint or is considered a saint by others, is not necessarily, is not necessarily is not a saint. Some of them are not, is what I'm trying to say. And uh, we have to be sharp on that. It's not a question of criticism or judgment. It's a question of looking out for our own uh, protection. And that is why this is, occupies a place in this very basic instruction that Jesus is giving here. The point is, okay, that um, there are two points. One is the ravening wolves. Okay, a true master comes to give. A false master comes to take. Very simple criterion. And it's not difficult, I think, for anyone with with, with a reasonable amount of insight and perception to be aware when he is in the presence of someone who is giving to him, as opposed to being in the presence of someone who needs him to be there for his own purposes. He may not be necessarily taking financially or uh, in an obvious way like that. He may be feeding on the people who come to him psychologically. If he gives evidence of thinking that it's very important to him that people come to him, uh, for example, that he needs them, that he somehow finds his completion in uh, what he gets from them. Well, this is another way of being a ravening wolf. And it is exactly what the false prophets do. But it's a very simple thing. We know them by their fruits. And this can be interpreted lots of ways. Um, master Kripal Singh made a great point out of that a true master gives a first-hand inner experience at initiation. And that's one of the fruits. But he also pointed out in other places that uh, this was not the only criterion that more important, perhaps even than this, if we are in a position to tell, is the life that the Master lives. The life has to back up um, the ability to give the experience. In the anuradh Saga, Kabir makes the same point, exactly the same point. And uh, it's a very obvious thing, I think. If we are in the presence of someone who is free, who is loving, who is in the world like the river in order to, uh, and the other things that are that mentioned in the great hymn that Sanchi quotes, uh, for the good of others, is very clear to us that this is the case. We get from him only those things. And it is very obvious his life reeks of it, we might say. He can't help but show that. On the other hand, if we have reason, if we have reason to want to be flattered because the false prophet's way of approaching the disciples is mutually reciprocal. He will give exactly what he wants to take. In other words, the true master will come bring love and liberation and freedom from the cycle of births and deaths. The false master will come and he will bring uh flattery and a false sense of peace and the making the disciple feel good Um when he should be actually uh, working hard, so these are things which are very clear, you know, and anyone with with half a brain can tell them. I think it's not a a, a big issue. Uh, if we want to be fooled, we will be, and if we don't, um, we won't be. But all masters have laid stress on this: that false prophets do exist; they are ravening wolves, and they uh, are are not in the world selflessly as with true masters although outwardly they may appear to be very similar but they are in the world in order to um for their own good like everyone else and when jesus says they will be cast into the fire okay all that means is he's not there referring to a permanent hell all that means is that those people are not out of the cycle and they will be they are not left the fire of desire Fire, dear, means exactly the same as in the Buddha's famous fire sermon. They are under the control of lust and anger, etc. Therefore, they are on fire, and therefore, they will go back into it. And uh, they have a long way to go before they come out of it. And we can tell them definitely by their fruits, and we are supposed to tell them by their fruits, is not a, a violation of not judging others to be sharp on these points. It is if we go around and slander them and criticize them and and drag their name through the mud. But just a simple assessment from our own point of view of what we need in the way of being liberated and of finding God uh, is all that's required and keeping aloof on our own part. On this very context, Master Kripal Singh says, this is in the night of the jungle, page 160. The night is a jungle, page 164. If you do not stop enjoying the senses, you will not be able to leave the body. If there is filth stored up inside, you may cover it with the finest silks, yet you will not succeed in disguising the smell. You can pour the strongest perfume on it, yet the odor will penetrate through. If you cover a block of ice with a blanket, you will still get the effect of its coolness by sitting close by. So it's a question of knowing the fruits the tree will bring forth fruits and the fruits will be there and all of us have eyes and we can see them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This again, a very short but very powerful and extremely important section with two main um, points that it's making. Again, the first is, again from our point of view, perhaps the most interesting. This is a direct repudiation of the doctrine that all you have to do is believe in some particular master, uh, believe that he is the son of God and that he did certain things and died in a certain way, and then we will go to heaven. Because although it is true that this is the official Christian position, as well as the position of other faiths regarding their own particular founders, uh, the, the founder of Christianity himself, is repudiating it here in the strongest possible terms. He is saying that it just is not true. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And I would respectfully point out that orthodox Christian theology in all denominations is based very heavily on exactly this not being true, that, Every denomination maintains that what you have to do to get into the kingdom of heaven is precisely to say, Lord, Lord, to the personal figure of Christ. And they ignore or explain away the part about doing the will of my father uh, in one way or another. And yet the verse is very clear that to be a Christian is not necessarily to be a Christian, if you follow me that when the masters give talks on who is a true Christian, for example, and describe it in these terms, and it is precisely when Sanchi gave that talk in Bombay several years ago, which was later published in the magazine and will be the last talk included in the book Streams in the Desert, um, he had never read this this section. He does not know the Bible firsthand because he doesn't read um, English or any language that the Bible is in. But he still, what he gave was a a very thoroughgoing commentary and explanation of precisely this point, because he knows it from within. And all masters have known it, and Jesus knew it, which is why he says it. So it is not a question of belief in that sense. It's a question of doing what the Father wants. And it is very clear in the next, have we not prophesied in thy name, Lord? Have we not cast out devils, Lord? Have we not done many wonderful works? These are things that down through the centuries people who claim to be believers in a way that others are not will point to to show how good believers they are. And it's still happening today in just this way. <coughs> and therefore these are taken to be proofs of the descent of the Holy Spirit. And while there may be in other parts of the Bible that are not the direct words of Christ it may be reason to um to see that this is there and we will go into this later my point now is that in the words of Christ himself it is not possible that he has carefully arranged to supersede that to prevent it from being taken too seriously and yet down through the ages it has not been his words that have been paid attention to but the words of other people theoretically of less elevation but in fact they are paid more attention to by the so-called followers of Christ. So these are important, a very important passage. And if anyone ever says to any satsangi, well, you're not a Christian because you don't um, believe in Christ in the way that we do, you don't call upon his name and so forth and so on, I have found over the years these verses to be very useful, to read them and to point out that, for example, uh, my master may not have addressed Jesus as Lord, Lord, but I never knew anyone who did the will of the Father more than he did. And by the, by the words of Christ himself, that is what counts. And it's a very powerful verse. Again, most orthodox believers are not aware of this verse. This is not the part of the Bible that is studied, the words of Christ. The words of Paul are studied, and the book of Acts are studied. And these, in these books, uh, a lot went in to, to totally reverse the teachings of Christ himself, and to make it um, more easily accessible and less difficult to follow, or so the authors thought. But we are concerned here with the words of Christ himself, and if it's put in those terms, most people who are interested in following Christ, who are interested in being Christians, would go along with that. They would agree that the words of Christ have to be the most important. It has to be that way. And here he has made it very plain. This is not the name of the game. It is not um, calling on his name. It is a question of doing the will of the Father. Now, the other level on which it's applicable, um, probably the immediately the immediate level on which he was speaking at the time, is uh, in the very last words of the initiation instructions. At the very tail end, the master says, "Respect my words." more than my body that will give you real lasting good now all of us have heard those words uh, and yet perhaps we live up to them perhaps we may not but the point is that loving the master does not mean um, making a big show out of um, recognizing him loving him that sort of thing although god knows if people are spontaneously reacting to him. There is nothing wrong with that. There are plenty of instances in the Gospels also where people reacted that way to Jesus, and he blessed it. But we should realize that um, this sort of thing takes second place to keeping the commandments, to paying attention to his words, that we may. In India, it is common, and it is also maybe common over here, that when the master comes, okay, we come up. And we make, really, we are very, we we sit in the front row and we go running for darshan and we really, uh, really enjoy being in his company. And yet, as soon as he's gone, we forget all about him and what he says. And as far as any effort is concerned, we don't bother with it. So, uh, this is the kind of thing that is referred to. There was a story that I read in an old satsang desh, uh, many years back, that when I was in India at the Unity of Man conference, in the talk that I gave at the conference, I quoted it. And Sanchi read the account of that, of that um, conference, and he read that talk. This was before we met. He read that talk, and he um, quoted from it after that, uh, as though I had said it, which is very kind of sweet, but kind of, also, it always made me feel a little funny. Anyway, the story is of two gardeners um, who are both left to tend the garden and the, the owner of the garden is gone and one of the, one of the gardeners is working hard and the other one is sitting around. And when the owner of the garden comes, the gardener who is working hard continues to work hard but the one who is sitting around suddenly starts dancing in front of him, tells him how much he loves him and won't let him get away from his presence and tries to touch his feet and so forth. And put in those terms, we can see just how irrelevant some of that stuff is. But the point is to do the work that he has entrusted with us. To manifest joy at meeting him is fine, you know, if it comes out of, a, out of the wholeness of a life, if it comes out of the, of the heart um, in a spontaneous eruption, so to speak. No one can knock the fruits of love, but uh, as a substitute for what we're supposed to do, it doesn't work. And that is very definitely a part of the meaning of this, of this section also. And then he goes into the concluding section. Therefore, whosoever hearing, heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not. For it was founded upon a rock that everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it there's a lot of thought in this section also Now, first of all, it's been objected. I was told many years ago by a friend of mine that uh, actually this parable is all wrong because sand is a much better foundation material to build on than rocks. And that's really not true. In the connection, in the terms of the area in which this talk was given, which is to say Palestine, the, uh, the most ideal place to build a house which has to be built near water, of which there is very little, is as close as possible to the, the dry streams called vadis, which um, overflow when it rains, and, and it make, bring water water becomes accessible. Uh, but also they're very dangerous, because when they rain, they can um, be flood, they can be flooded very easily. So you build as close as you can to the vadis and you bolt your house very securely to a rock. And then even if it floods, you would be okay. If you build close to the vādī without doing that, uh, just put it on the sand, then it will be washed right down the stream. And the temptation constantly of the people who live in this area is to build close to the vādī whether or not there is a rock there to build on. And of course, it's rock in the singular. It is one rock which the house is supposed to be fixed to very solidly. um, And... There is no stronger foundation in the whole world than that. So this is the parable that he has given, uh, and it refers to, of course, not to people who, um, who never hear about the Master, or who never come to him, who never read his words, but about people who hear them and do them not. And it is the opinion of most scholars who have gone into this, or at least of some of them who have gone into this, who have studied the original Greek, that the implication here is that, first, you have already made a commitment. In other words, hearing the words here means hearing with your heart. You have recognized something. It does not mean someone who comes and just it goes, washes over their head and they don't get anything from it and go away. But we come and hear the Master. If something in us recognizes that this is, yes, the truth. And so um, we make some commitment and then we don't live up to it. And so it really refers to initiates gay or people who are close to initiation or who have come very close to initiation at one time or another, people who in some degree have recognized the Master. If they don't live up to what they have heard and recognized, this is far worse than not recognizing in the first place. Because um, it's just a fact of life that if we have a vision and then we reject it, we are in worse shape than if we never have it at all. We are betwixt and between. And that in those ways, our foundation is useless and the first thing that comes is going to uh, tear us apart and we are going to fall. And our fall will indeed be great. Again, does not necessarily mean in the long run. Many things that the masters say, most things that the masters say, unless they specifically speak otherwise, are in terms of the present moment. We will fall. If we fall in this lifetime, I think we will be sorry enough so that we will work to prevent that from happening. We may know that in three or four lifetimes we may be saved. We may know that Master will come and take us after death. But if we have let him down totally, and if we have not received that which was our heritage to receive in this lifetime, then even though Master may come and take us, even though we will eventually be saved, we will have, I think, we will feel that we will have wasted our life. So, it's an important point that the Master is making here, and it's important to grasp it, and it remains true, that uh, those who, who recognize the sayings and then forget about them or turn their back on them, they do fall, and their fall is great. There is those who ...recognize them and pay attention to them... ...and make them the cornerstone of their life... ...the rock that their building is built on... um, ...well, they don't fall. And that's the point that is being made. And that ends the instruction. And it came to pass, it says... ...that Jesus had ended these sayings... ...the people were astonished at his doctrine. They taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Very interesting verse. I love that verse. And it's when I was searching for a master, at one point I defined it in terms of this verse, that I was looking for one having authority, not a scribe. And it is, after all, the same thought that the masters say, the Indian masters say, when they speak of uh, Kabir speaking to the pundit, O learned pundit, how can your mind and my mind ever agree us, you say what you read in books, whereas I say what I see. And the difference, I think every one of us can easily understand, because we have experienced the difference between sitting at the feet of someone who is speaking from real inner authority, and sitting at the feet of, of someone who is not. And that is, of course, it's an astounding thing to come into contact with someone in this position, and... Uh, Um, the people were astounded, as it says specifically. They were astonished at his doctrine. Because it had been a long time uh, in Israel since the prophetic tradition had flourished. John the Baptist was, as far as we know, there's a lot that we don't know, but as far as public missions go, apart from esoteric and semi-monastic Missions like the Essenes, uh, John the Baptist was the first holy man to have a public mission in several hundred years in Israel, and Jesus would then be the second, so it was a new thing. it was not something that the people were accustomed to reading about in their books only, not something they were accustomed to uh, seeing in real life and As we get into, we have now finished the Sermon on the Mount and In the weeks to come, when we have an opportunity, we will continue with the the series. We will, I'm not sure exactly which order we will take things in, but sooner or later, we will definitely cover the sections in John in which this particular aspect of Jesus' ministry is dealt with. The inability of the people to take him uh, seriously as a holy man because he was not one of the people in their books. The idea that holiness is something that only happens in the past its of course astoundingly relevant to us because that is precisely the position that anyone is ever in who follows a living master, unless the culture has maintained a strong tradition of the living guru, which is true of only a few parts of the world, it's true in parts of the Far East in India and in parts of the Middle East, it is not an uncommon thing to go to the feet of a living guru. But in most of the rest of the world, it is now and always has been, not the way it's done. No, we read about someone who lived a long time ago and think that it was only in those days. But in their lifetime also, they faced this. And Jesus was confronted with this over and over again. You cannot be holy because you are not Moses. That's basically what they were telling him. You are not Moses, so you cannot be holy. Today, people say the same thing. You cannot be holy because you're not Jesus. So the wheel goes around, and and uh, it's the irony of the Master's mission is that they are never recognized or only partially recognized in their lifetime, but always after their death they are given homage to when they are safe and cannot tell us that we are not really pleasing them if we are doing something that they don't like. So it will take that up in the future, and it's a very interesting and important study, I think, for all initiates, to see exactly how this works. So we have completed the Sermon on the Mount, which, as we have seen, is perhaps better referred to as the Great Instruction, and we have discovered there that Jesus talks about the means through which grace flows, in other words, the attitudes, the Handles, you might say, that the disciples can grab in order to become receptive. The ways in which to position ourselves so that our windows will be wide open to the grace coming from the Master. A lot of different ways to put it. That is what it it refers to. And it is. it has always been recognized as a very important document, but I think we have seen that it has not been always paid much attention to as to exactly its content.